Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and a very warm welcome to the brand new Le French Rugby Podcast. It is in English, in case the title confused you, uh, but we've got a huge amount of French knowledge and rugby IQ on board. I'm your host, Tim Groves, and I'm joined by a duo who can tell you everything you ever wanted to know about rugby in France. So I'll introduce you to the recently retired France international, Benjamin Kayser, and Scotland international, Johnny Beatty. How are you guys? Well, we're really good. Thanks a lot for the introduction. Uh, newly retired is what I like to hear. Uh, it's been over a year now, but let's just say that I'm so staying incredibly fit that I still, I could be a professional rugby player, right? Is that what we're trying to say? So I love a little compliment to start this, to get this going. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I'm good as well. Um, but quite clearly, I couldn't still play. There's absolutely no chance. That's why I retired. But good, looking forward to this. I'm excited to be part of it. So just give us a bit of background then. Why are we, why are we doing this? Uh, what kind of insight do we want to give people? What should people expect? Every single time that I speak about French rugby, there's this sort of myth and unknown about this exotic place just across the channel that seems to be a little bit crazy. And they always ask me, you know, differences. What's the difference between French rugby and English rugby? What is the difference in, in culture, in stories, in ways of behaving, in pre-match, post-match, rugby, whatever it is. I'm in love with France, obviously, with my home country. Um, but I had the weakness of falling in love with, a, with an English woman. So I am obviously hooked to England as well. And Johnny, who is a proud Scotsman, uh, fell in love with France. So we just wanted, to, that, that's my idea. We just wanted to get this exotism out on the table, some juicy stories, kill some myths, create some new ones and just have fun. 100%. And it is. I mean, I'm the opposite. Obviously, I started my career in Scotland, but I came over when I was 26. I'm now 34. So it's been a long time and I've loved every minute of it. And again, to, to go with what Benji said, the stories that you get aligned with the stars that play in this competition, the talent that we have over here, it's worth talking about. And having played there, in English and speaking French, all of, none of my English teammates even knew what was going on. So the aim is to dispel a lot of the myths around French rugby, transfer that over an English language and let everyone in the world digest exactly what French rugby can offer. Because it's an amazing place, an amazing part of the world and the rugby is fantastic. And you mentioned the names there. The top 14 does have some of the biggest stars in the world. And usually about now we'd be getting perhaps one of them on, a guest to have a chat with them about the stories, about how life's going in France. Uh, but given that it's the first episode, obviously we want to get to know you guys. So before we do that, who are the kind of names that you'd like to get on in, in future? What, who are the kind of people that you want to talk to? I think we're going to be looking at three different strands of people. You're looking at ex-players 
French and foreign. So guys like Johnny Wilkinson, who came over here and revived his career. Serge Betson, who also had both, was at Wasps and at Biarritz. Um, and then your current crop that's over here. So guys like Jerome Cano, Sergio Parise, uh, Victor Vito, guys that are absolutely killing it. It'd be great to talk to them. You've also got your sort of your coaching element, guys like Philippe Saint-André, English speakers that can give us a bit of an insight into their clubs, their inner workings of their teams and their culture and what they're trying to set about. So it's going to be a real mix. It's going to be diverse and hopefully we can get some seriously good guests on to, to give us their stories from the club rugby in France. So my view is more, picture myself being a uh, uh, Clermont Verne player for the last 10 years and seeing all those rugby superstars coming about in France. And I want to understand, because that's always been a fascination of mine, oh, why would one guy kill it and the other be chucked in a bin? You know, that's, that's the sort of understanding you want to get, because there's some incredible stories. I mean, I play with James Haskell, who's a, quite a funky character in Stade Francais, uh, but I also play with John Fox Davis. And, you know, you, saw, you see all those guys coming and, and understand that you get a lot more through those conversations to, to understand the reality of what French rugby is rather than just speaking about, you know, the big structural problems and all that, you understand what the day-to-day -day life is. Because let's face it, French rugby has been a disaster for the last 10 years, roughly. If you, if you take away the last six nations, we gave a new positive, dynamic, open attack, Fabien Galtier-style rugby. But before that, and I was part of it, and I'm blame, partly to blame, obviously, uh, we were part of an extremely poor national side 2011 is probably the worst thing that could ever happen to french rugby because it, oh you got to the world cup finals everything's fine everything's not fine you just yeah there's obviously quality players there's obviously quality youngsters there's quality coaches there's incredible fans but it's like this it's a roller coaster in france you need to be ready i always like to give the example of a 100 meter race well you'll be racing against usain bolt and then when you turn your head then you'll have the hurdles you're you're sprinting a 110 meter hurdle and that's the difference and you will hit them every time because you think is it because i'm not fast enough no it's because this whole structure is different we are we are different people <laughs> the french are quite a, quite a wild different uh, type of breed uh, but that's what Uh, makes people fall in love with us. So we'll get into that culture difference shortly. And there's no one better place to talk about it than you, Benjamin, because you mentioned it before. You're in Tunbridge Wells. What's happened? What, why are you there? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm whipped. That's what happened. So my <laughs> wife decided to go back to, to England after 10, 10 years. I met my wife uh, was playing in Leicester Tigers. She was studying there. She's from, from Kent. And so after 10 beautiful years in France, 11 beautiful years in France, and two amazing children, we decided to come back to put them in a school around here. Her parents are sort of from the area. And with Eurostar, it might be, it's sad, but I'm closer living here to Paris than being based in Clermont. So the idea is that, and I'm going back to study, I'm doing a, an executive MBA in Oxford, almost like pretty much part-time. To figure out what the next step of, of my life will be, here was a good base, but the general gist, the general idea, I would much rather be in Johnny Beatty's shoes right now and be by the beach every afternoon, but you got to do what's best for your family and... The missus said, pack it up and go back to England. So I did so. And Johnny, you're staying in France? Yeah, definitely medium term. So as I said, we came over here in 2012. During lockdown, we got the good news that we're now French citizens. We've got our passports um, and we're happy here. The kids are in school. Our two were born here. We've got a third one on the way coming in December. Um, and we really, really enjoy the way of life. Um, we've absolutely loved it. We're well integrated with the local community. We live in the southwest. So in between Hossegor and Biritz, which is surf time, and we're really happy. So we're going to give it at least two, three, four years, see if we can handle raising three kids at the beach by ourselves without grandparents. And if we can't, then maybe go back to Scotland. But right now we're having a great time. So rugby finished for me in January, now looking at a few different projects out here and, and starting our life in France. And how is your surfing, Johnny? 
my wife got me my first lesson and it's booked for two weeks time, three weeks time, I think. So I'm going to try and find, I think, an 11 or a 12 foot board to try and take uh, this weight, which has obviously gone up a bit since I stopped. Um, but really looking forward to it. It's been good just getting this summer swimming with the kids in the ocean um, and enjoying it. So the next step is getting that surfboard and getting involved properly. Could be a second career because I was going to ask you, you've both hung up your boots, you know, within the last year or so. So just talk to us a bit about how difficult a decision that was for each of you and also what happens because there's a lot of talk about the chômage in, in France and, and, you know, Benjamin, you're coming over to, to England to study. So just talk about how and they call it the Le Petit Mort in France, don't they? So how, how was that as a decision um, and working out what you're going to do next? Well, for me personally, it was a relatively easy decision, even if it was quite sudden, because it was a medical decision. I had two two neck operations already, and uh, I had another problem in the in the level below. And so they were talking about the third operation. I was like, listen, I'm I'm 35. I I did what I had to do. I still had two years contract, but what two years contract is 40 odd games. It's potentially four more titles. I would have absolutely loved because it's 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 um. A heartache of mine to live, win the Champions Cup and lift it once in my career, but I didn't, but that's okay. So it was more that the, at one point, the neurosurgeon came to see me. It's like, even if good scenario, you get the third up, everything's okay, and you, you finish your career all good, in 15 years' time, because of arthrosis on your discs, your fingers might start to move because of the, the, the problems on the spine. I was like, okay, listen, in 15 years, I'm 50. I want to be playing tennis and running up and down my not so much finished garden uh, with, with my kids. And, um, and, that, and that was really it. So uh, packed it up pretty suddenly. But I think, honestly, there's a lot of cash in rugby, especially in top 14. But there, there will never be enough for guys to only do that. And I think that's obviously, we always get say, you guys get paid, what, 25 times less than footballers? Maybe. But I think that's a gift. Because at least it gives the, 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 the possibility, sorry, it forces the players to stay in connection with the reality of life. They stay in connection with local communities, with what it is to get up and work. And so you're constantly interested about sponsors, networking, who can you chat to, who can you, you know, be a little bit curious in your head about what to do next, because that's at least the way that I was brought up. From day one, they told me, listen, this is going to be like a golden time of your life, but it's only just a period. It will stop. It will end. You will have to then do something normal, because I don't feel, I don't know how you feel, Johnny, but I don't feel that I've worked I've worked hard for what I do, but I never considered it as a job. Even if it's very, very hard, it's more of a hard passion. But that's it, really. And then you just pack up, take the decision, go. It still hurts. I hated the weeks, so I don't miss them. I absolutely loved the Saturdays, and I missed them dearly. I missed, uh, even towards the end of my career, everybody's like, oh, are you still stressed before games? Do you feel relaxed? Like The day that I'm not stressed and I'm just going to walk on the pitch, kill me, shoot me. There's no point. Otherwise, when you, when you do win and when you do something good, it doesn't feel at all um, fantastic does it so no I miss I miss the Saturdays I miss the boys commentary and doing a few little things helps me get there but it's just not the same you don't get run over by a truck and you don't feel like you've you know you've been hit by a piano uh, after commentary game so that's the very different but I, I will miss it I miss it I will always miss it but uh, but I had to stop I think also to add though Benji we've both been pretty lucky in the longevity that we've had like obviously you've had to stop a couple of years short but the amount of friends I had that had to retire, say age 22, 23, 25, bad knee injury, they never really got to do what they wanted to do. We've both been lucky, got to play for the French team. I got to play for Scotland. We've both played, you played in England and in France, me, Scotland and in France. So I think we can both 
not pat ourselves on the back, that's too far, but we're lucky that to, done, to have done what we have. And I think if we hadn't, it would have been harder to stop. So there's a lot of people where it's much tougher, whereas I feel we both got to, you know, 14, 15, 16 years, 16 seasons of pro rugby, which is tough on your body and mentally as well when you get to the end. So um, for me, it was more natural come to the end of a, a life cycle of something that I loved. But I always knew, like Benji said, you have, if you're lucky, 10 to 15 years to earn, try and put money aside, plan, and then get into the working world after rugby and put your best foot forward. So that's the sort of stepping and the footing that we're on to now. And it's going to be a good challenge, but it should, again, be, be a good time and good fun. And I don't want to lift the curtain behind the scenes too much for the for the listeners, but um, Johnny, we can see you've got a nice big open plan, kitchen diner, you're, you're well settled in France. Benjamin, we've seen behind the scenes, like there's a hole in the roof, like the kids are in a hotel or something. What's, what's going on? <laughs> Well, so you want to talk money, huh? You want to talk money. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. No, but you speak about France and top 14, you, you have to talk about money. Money has been a blessing, but it's always also been the curse, I think, of top 14. We've created this monster, which is clearly dominating French rugby in general. So we'll, we'll speak about it later, I'm sure. But the, the political differences, the federation at the moment has got zero decision-making power. Canal Plus, which is the, the, the top 14 broadcaster in France and the league, decide of pretty much everything. Ils font la pluie et le beau temps, like we say in French. They, they, they make it rain, they make it and make the sun come out. So it is, it is, it is a big, big thing. Of course, most of the, the, the foreigners that come to France come for that financial power. But if they stay, it's for something else. But there is, there is a lot of cash. Um, I, I mean, I started my career in 2003, 2004 in Stade Francais. Max Guazzini was still the president. And he was the guy that created this whole new rugby. Everybody took the piss out of him. Pink jerseys for the players. Going to Stade de France with Pom Pom Girls show before. He's the only guy that filled for six league games, premiership games, top 14 games, 80,000 people in Stade de France. When you look at what the situation now, I mean, he was, and he was 15 years ahead of everyone. So he really did. But you thought you would get every single president who had a bit of money would be like him because he gave his life and soul and every single penny that he had uh, to Stade Francais to then the, the, the club had uh, financial trouble and then it got bought back for one euro, but obviously took all the debt with it. To someone. So he got zero of his money back. He only, it was a passion project. The only problem is, do you think that everybody's like him? Do you think that the racing president, do you think that Moed Altrad is like this? Do you think that Dr. Weil in Stade Francais is like this? Do you think that all those guys are like this? That, uh, it's called like philanthropy. I don't know how you say that in English, but it, it, it just doesn't work. So this money is a blessing because we filled stadiums, we created something exciting, stars want to come. I mean, play against Johnny Wilkinson, I thought that was a gift. I almost want to say Murad Bujirat, thanks. That's, that's Bakis Bota, uh, Ma Nonu, whatever, you name it. Every, Matt Ghetto, I mean, that Toulon side who cost me a lot of depressing sort of feelings at some point. <laughs> uh, they had a crazy good team when you think about it. So if you come across to play, you know, one international, you play once against the All Blacks, you'll, you'll, you'll remember for the rest of your life. I played against Sonny Bill Williams, Manonu, Drew Mitchell, Matt Gitto, Johnny Wilkinson, you know, Juan Lobe, Bakis Bota, Ali Williams, Carl Heyman, Andrew Sheridan, and all those guys were in one team. And that's because of the financial power and the activity of the, of the top 14 and the fact that Toulon is, there's worse places in the world to live. When you don't train, you can go for a jet ski uh, tour, you know, around an island. So there's worse places. And money is, be and that, that system is being punched in the mouth at the moment by COVID because you realize how fragile it is. And I think the, the club owners are, are one of the most interesting things about French rugby. I mean, in England, the premiership clubs, the, the finances are very fragile. They're, they're, most of them are privately owned by individuals with, with a decent amount of personal wealth. In France, it seems almost a level up. 
but also those guys seem bigger characters. And you mentioned a couple of the biggest ones there, Benjamin, in Max Corsini and Murad Bujalal. Obviously, you played at Stade Francais when Max was in it. Have you got any interesting stories about him? What's he like? <laughs> You're laughing already? Um, many, many stories. Many, many stories. But again, that's the myth that needs to be killed. Now, so just to, to sum it up, he's a guy that was, he was an impresario. He was like... Um, sort of a lawyer agent for Dalida, which was a huge French singer, Italian born. Uh, and then he was, so he was massively into the showbiz, you know, the music industry. And then he went to take over and be the president of a radio called Energy, who then there was a sort of a radio revolution in France in the, in the mid eighties where um, radio became um, privatized and he, be, he turned into the biggest radio in Europe. And he had crazy, so, you know, big showbiz, he knew all the stars, he knew that he's, he's got pictures, of the, he knows the Rolling Stones, he knows Madonna, he, that type of environment, so not rugby. And then he took over Stade Francais as a passion project when they were in federal, well, fifth or fourth division or something. He created something out of absolutely nowhere. Everybody took the piss out of him. What the hell do you know about rugby? And he just transformed things. Guys were forced to wear blazers. They were taking the piss out of, yes. But then if you get taking the piss out of all the time, it builds a sort of sense of culture. Don't judge me by the way that I dress. Judge me by the way that I play. When they, um, the best example I've got is that we went to Perpignan with, with Stade Francais in 2006 when he started with those pink jerseys. And it, nobody knew that we were going to wear those pink jerseys. We knew that he, he had an idea about it. He, he would come with those crazy ideas. Boys, I've got this. What do you think? And then before a game, he laid down those two jerseys, the blue ones, the pink ones. And then he's like, well, you guys choose. Every single guy went to pick the, pick the pink jersey just because we wanted to tell Perpignan, stuff you. We're going to wear whatever we want. You can boo us, scream at us, spit at us, whatever it is. Not only will we wear them, but we'll beat you. We didn't that, that day. We didn't win. But at least, you know, it, 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 creates, it creates a sense of, of unity in the, in, the, in the city as well. It's culture and values where rugby was absolutely nothing in Paris at the time. And so you need to stand out in some way. So Max... To be fair to him, is one of those presidents who had a lot of money, yes, but he also came to see me play when I was like playing for the under-15s. He, he gave his life and soul to the club. Um, you could take out a piss out of him because he, he doesn't look the strongest and the most um, filled up with testosterone guy. I'm telling you, nobody ever stepped on his toes when it's a negotiation, uh, when you're negotiating a, a contract. He was the toughest businessman. Or he is the toughest businessman you've, you've ever met. And he's done some incredible stuff for rugby. So I've got plenty of stories. Maybe I need a few beers to get them out. Just give me a little bit of time. But, but he created this incredible thing where um, with the calendar. When, I always remember James Haskell taking the pictures of the start calendar and Max Guazzini smoking those long cigarettes in their little stools like, chuck him sand. There's not enough sand. Somebody chuck him sand. And I'm thinking <laughs> this guy is the president of my club. And two hours later, you were talking about contract with him. And I'm telling you, he would drive you nuts and he would break you in pieces before you sign the paper. So that was this, it, that's the 50-50 side of him that, make him that makes him so complex and so unique. And Johnny, I'll let, you, uh, I'll let you grill Benjamin about some more stories on Max in the episodes to come. But obviously you played under Mohed Altrad as, a, as an owner. So is he very different? What's, what's he like? He's an amazing character. Um, completely different to Max, but you have to understand that every president in France gets into a club for their own reasons. To understand Mohed, you have to go back and understand his story, where he came from. I mean, strangely, he like was born Syrian desert. His his mother had two children out of rape. Uh, was raped by his dad twice. He was the second son. 
His mom then died the day that he was born, like seriously, seriously complex upbringing. Uh, was raised by his granny, didn't have any education. One day went along to the local school, peeked over a wall, saw they were writing, understood nothing and decided that I have to get myself an education. So ended up enrolling himself in school, came across, I think, to Montpellier with literally nothing. To study in Montpellier, arrived as a young dude with like not one word of French. Slowly through, there was a small recession, depression in France, saw some scaffolding lying still, bought the whole thing, decided to finance a new project, become scaffolding, Altrad. You see cement mixers, scaffolding now everywhere in Europe. I think his company has a turnover of 5 billion, but for Moed, it wasn't enough. He wanted notoriety for what he'd done, not only in the business world. I think he was the world entrepreneur of the year in 2015. I mean, huge levels of success in finance, huge. But he wanted to be known in France for other things, and that was it. Montpellier was his plaything. So you go out to Montpellier, you arrive in the car park, there are five Lambos. You get to choose which one you want to drive around for the morning for a laugh if he lets you. He's a really nice guy. But again, it's for notoriety. It's to be known, it's to get his image out there in the French media, French public, to get him up another level because he has the wealth, but he now wants to be known. Um, you speak about rugby. Again, like Max, doesn't know that much about rugby, but loves being involved, loves trying to push a project. It's been hard. There's been, I think, six coaches in the past 10 years, and he's going to keep on pushing until he gets that team to the top 14 and win something like Max did at Stade Francais. So hugely interesting guy. His story is unbelievable. And now he's the boss of one of the biggest playthings in the world. And, and again, to go back on your point, Ben, you touched on that team that, that Toulon had. I mean, think about the LNR and the reporting that should be. Like you talk sal salary caps and you look at Saracens. I have no idea what the control is with LNR and how it's regulated, but there's just no way that any of these teams are under any sort of salary cap. So again, we'll get onto these things in different topics and different pods, but France is the wild west. The wealth and the money that goes into these clubs is a different level and it's a different animal. So it's going to be interesting going forward to talk about it every week and try and get into it in more detail. So there'll be a lot more of that chat to come in future weeks, but just on a, on a very simple level, because you're obviously both very passionate about it. What, what is the, best thing about French rugby and what's the worst thing about French rugby, Benjamin? The passion is just incredible. The passion of the fans, the passion of the people. Uh, so French rugby is not played at school. French rugby is played in clubs. So you, I, I, I started Stade Francais when I was 14 years old, but you can start from the age of six in Bayonne uh, where Johnny played and then you will grow up. So there's this legacy about where you're from. You represent the region, you represent your mates, you represent your grandparents. You know, there's, that is really sunk into our blood. You need to protect your home, protect your region. So the passion behind it is ginormous. And that's what makes it so fun. We are passionate people. We can be random, almost bipolar, extremely susceptible, but, but we are passionate. And if you convince me to do something, I will go through a wall for you. And in rugby, that's very, very powerful. I mean, I was always mesmerized in Leicester. Leicester, when I played there in 2007, they were, you know, you didn't want to, you didn't want to mess with Julian White, with Ben Kay, Martin Corey, Lewis Moody, all those old school, tough, tough fellas. An hour and a half before the game, I used to walk into the stadium almost with the, the, the fans in the same time. Martin Corey would be drinking a cup of tea with, a, you know, with a, with a journalist and chatting away in the change room. They are the most relaxed boys I've ever seen. But 45 minutes before, there's some sort of switch on the side of the head, zoom. Game face. If you, if you miss that switch, they will beat the shit out of you. And that with me and Julian Dupuis, who were like, oh, all jolly. Oh, this is all good. You know, nothing's going on. And if you missed it, and then they really, you know, if you, if you offend them by not taking things seriously, they really drill into you. In France, we can't do that. We, we do not have the, 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 the brain function that tells you you can be super chilled and stay chilled and then just walk on the pitch. We need to wind ourselves up. We let go a lot of energy because of that. But we need to wind ourselves up and stay focused and all that. So... 
The passion is the best thing. The worst thing is the lack of professionalism, is the lack of thoroughness, is the lack of reliability. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually sometimes ashamed of the stories that I hear of how foreign players have been treated either by coaches or by presidents because they don't do the same thing to the French guys because obviously there's no language barrier and all that. Uh, they sometimes, your really, guys were treating like, like pieces of meat. So the passion is the best. The cash must be up there too. And then um, we, we should mention, I don't know whether it's in the south of France or if it's in Tunbridge Wells, but it's someone building an extra wing on, on the house at one of those places. Which way, where is it? No, I'm, I'm, I've got a small, small problem. I'm, I'm, I don't have a roof. So they're, trying to, so they're trying to fix that at the moment. So I, I, I'm sorry, guys, but I can't tell them to stop because I don't want to be rained on. It won't be there every week. But um, so, so Johnny, what, for you, what's the, what's the best and worst things about uh, playing in France? There are loads of positives. I think people get caught up on the negatives. For me, again, so Benji's point, the passion is ridiculous. For, for a Scottish, again, British culture, you sit and watch rugby, it's quite kick and clap. It's not that vibrant. You then get to a stadium. For me, I got to cast and I was like this. It's a town of 45,000 people. How many people realistically are going to come watch the game? There's 16,000, 20,000 at a home game. It's mental. Half of the town downs tools and comes to watch you play rugby. With that, there's a brass band. It's chaos. They're baying for blood. The environment is just different. So your match day and the, the follow, following that you get from a town is next level. Then the day-to-day things of being in a French rugby club that I loved were things like the diversity. So if you're coming from a Scottish environment, you've obviously got 85% Scottish players and then a few foreigners. In France, it's maybe 50 to 60%, which will change now with the Giflaws going up, but 50 to 60% of your team would be French. After that, you've got Georgian, Argentinian. I had Chileans, South Africans, Kiwis, Aussies. You've got players from every country in the world. So for me, France has become a hotbed of a mix of the world's best talent. And you meet people from all over the world and each team and each team that you play against and you meet some incredible people. So that for me, diversity is definitely up there. Then the treatment of players sometimes isn't good. I've seen a lot of friends that have lasted, you know, four months in teams and, and snapped because they couldn't get their message across in English. They were getting basically bullied or abused by owners and coaches and that's it. So it's a really mixed place. I've absolutely loved it. It's fantastic. But for some guys, it isn't for them. We've spoken about owners a little bit and we'll, we'll speak more about that in future weeks. But um, coaches as well. Coaching in France is something that is often criticised over here in England. We speak about it's not as detailed as, as it is over here. That may be a myth that, that we want to dispel or it may, be, it may be true. But specifically the coaches that you've played under, who are the best coaches you've played under? Who are the worst coaches you've played under? Name names. You're both retired now. You can do that. And, and kind of what makes them good and bad? Um, I actually, I had to go deep into that um, not so long ago. And the best coach that I ever had would probably be sort of a mix of the different angles of, you know, what you, what you come across. I think there's some incredible stories about Franck Azemasso who's been my coach in, 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 in Clermont. And he's just a very human person. He connects with you on a human basis. I always felt, because towards the end of my career, I, I, I wasn't looking so much at the human. I was more looking at the, 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 the efficiency. So the humanity of Franck Azema, I think, is a, he's just a fantastic bloke deep down in, in his core. Vern Cotter was a dictator for, t- for six or seven years in, in France and then obviously for Scotland. But then the 2010 year where they won it with Clermont, he used to bat- batter the shit out of boys the day after you lose a, a game. So it was like you get a text, welcome, seven o'clock in the morning, you know, they would run the hills, do full-on contact. You know how it's like a punishment. So it works once, it works twice, but it doesn't look at, it work in the long run because that's unsustainable. And they lost a quarterfinal. I don't know if you remember, a quarterfinal of Champions Cup 
uh, in Leinster by like one point and Brock James misses like 16 points by kicking three drop goals, two penalties, whatever. The headline was like Calamity Jane and they get the text again, meet seven o'clock in the morning in the changing room. They're like, all right, we're going to get bollocked again. They got there at seven o'clock in the morning. Everybody gets dressed in their full training kit and there's 500 beers. He puts the music on. He's like, all right, lock the doors now. You finish those beers, then you can go home. And they spend the day laughing, sharing stories, obviously getting absolutely shit-faced, just living together. That year, they won it. He knew how to adapt to his management. Uh, he was good to me because instead of saying, you need to earn my trust, he signed me and he said, I will give you all my trust on it's you not to let it go. So like, no, no, it's like, I don't care about how well you're playing now. I know how good you can be. And that was precisely what I needed in my career. And that's why it, it hit off straight away. We obviously lost a lot more than you with Vern, but we never had the 500 beer story. So I'm gutted that that's the first thing you've led with. That never happened <laughs> to us. <laughs> 100% the best coach technically and the most gifted guy that I ever worked with was Fabian Galtier, but he was also the hardest guy to work for. So you touched on the human effect. Again, that's something that's talked about massively in France is coaching with uh, an effective side. I'm not sure how you translate that into English. You're affective. Your effect that you can have on people. And it's hugely important how you control a group, how you control respect and how you motivate people. In British or Anglo culture, it's not the same. You, you set out a game plan, you get everybody working for the organization and you just kind of roll it out. Whereas in France, it's more, how can you mediate your structure and your technical with actually, how can we get everyone on board, not have any fights and keep everyone's morale high. That is more of a primary shift I feel in France is how you look after people, especially the French side. It can sometimes be different with foreigners, but Fabian and coupled with um, Mario Ledesma, that was the team at the time, Really good coaching team. The detail was unbelievable. It was the best rugby I ever got to play. It was because of them and the way that we played the game in Montpellier for two years. But in terms of working with them, it was unbelievably hard. The way they would talk to people, the disrespect, the derogatory comments, the bullying every day. It really, really was tough. I remember a guy, you'll know him, Benji, Vincent Pello, Vincent Pello, who at the time was a young tight head coming through. We're doing scrummaging practice and he was struggling. He's now you know, play tests for France on a loose head. He kills it every week for La Rochelle and he's a good guy. I remember doing scrummaging practice and Mario would just lean, just pretend there's a cheeseburger behind the scrum. Go and fetch it, you fat ass. That was how we try and motivate people. He would just bully people and you, the whole scrum were packing down would go, oh, not again. You know, that kind of stuff on a regular basis or, you know, pulling people by the ears. Come here, you fat pig, get into place. This is where I told you to go. Like the, the language and the way they spoke to you in any other country, it wouldn't fly. But because you were there and then, and it was France and you were trying to make it work, it worked. So a real mix, some superbly talented coaches, some really bad ones as well. Probably the most anglified coach I worked with was Christoph Urios, who did really well with obviously Oyanax, Cast, and then uh, Bordeaux. They were leading the top 14 last year. And he's a guy I think we could look out for this year. Again, have, after having led the top 14 last year, doing a really good job with Bordeaux this season. Um, really structured, really into his culture, driving people, getting people to bond with their town. Um, and he has a good template if I had to play as well. Super organized and efficient guy. So he's definitely one to look out for this season. A lot of people will be surprised about those stories about Fabian Galtier, Johnny, because obviously he is the current France coach. So I mean, do you think he's changed? Do you think he's mellowed or is he still the same guy? No. I mean, I had him when I, in 2012, 2014. I mean, Benji, you had him when you were a young kid as well at Stade Francais. I think I'm right in saying, but I mean, there were stories that we heard from when he was at Stade Francais that were the worst, if not the same. There's a guy as well, like at the World Cup, refused to play the third, fourth playoff when he was a player. After losing the semi, he was like, I'm not playing in this third, fourth. And he flew home. Just It was about him. He wanted to be the best. And, and that was it. So, look, fundamentally, he is a top class coach. He, I've said before, he, he's the best coach that I've worked with from a technical perspective. But 
there are like personality traits that hold him back. And if he could fix them, he would be, he'd be one of the best in the world. 100%. Benji, you have stories from Stade Francais. I mean, there's even things from like, to, to give you an example, we had a player who'd re-signed a contract at Montpellier with uh, Moed Altrad, a three-year contract, a good sum of money. He'd been playing really well, but Fabian hadn't okayed it. And just to prove he was the boss, he said, I refuse to have that guy. It wasn't me that okayed it. Pay him out. And that was it. The week later, the guy that had signed his contract had three years of money arrive in a check in his bank account because Fabian was the boss and he's the one that had the last say in recruitment. Just to prove that point, the guy had to go and find another club, I think, sometime in July. So there's a long history of stories very, very different in levels of energy um, that get pumped up. But he's, he's an amazing coach, a very, very smart man as well. But there's some stories that would um, leave a very bad taste in your mind. Did you get a similar impression, Benjamin, at Stade Francais? To be fair, so it's a bit complicated for me to comment on that one because I, I think what Johnny says is, is, is pretty true. But he was my first coach. I mean, I had Nick Mallet when I first arrived in 2003, but I, I played one game on the bench. And then he was my first coach to actually give me a shot. He trusted me like nobody ever did. Uh, he really gave me, because he, 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 you can say whatever you want about him. He is ballsy. He's got nuts of steel. Uh, he backs himself and he's got great strategy and stuff. But I'll give you an example. So he chucked me um, when I was 19, 20, a semifinal in Bordeaux against Toulouse, who at the time were killing everyone. And remember the, that Charbon d'Elmas, the, the Bordeaux pitch, where there's a long tunnel to go through. So you just you walk for a long, long time. And he stood behind me the whole tunnel and he was just whispering stuff in my ear, you know, do this, do that, da, 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 da. literally helping me. I was so focused. I didn't really listen to what he was saying. Fair enough. You know, he's the coach. I'm, like, I'm not going to tell him to fuck off. So I'm walking down and stuff and we, I play really well and we win and I'm, on, I'm sky high. And, the, and at the end of the game, I shake his hand. The first thing he says to me is like, and he comes with a, he likes to, you know, to play like poker face all the time. He, he's never, really, he games. likes to, to, yeah. And he, he like, um, he p- puts you off all the time. You know, you're expecting him to give him a big hobby and then he stops and went, let this go. You're not going to say thank you. I was like, what do you mean? Did you see how much I helped you in the tunnel? Pretty much gave you that game, didn't I? <laughs> I was like, yeah, thank-. he just wanted me to say thank you. And I'm 20. So I'm saying, thank you, Fabien. You know, <laughs> I'm not really standing up for myself, but at the same time, he trusted me like nobody else. And he really did help me. And everything that he told me was true. What, what, what I worked on worked. And, and he's the only coach that I ever met that on Tuesday is like, hang on. So this is what happened in design. Okay, let's, let's go. Hang on. Let me think. All right, we're going to create this play. We're going to do this, this, that, 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 that. And on Saturday, you score. And we did. That's the only time that this has ever happened to me. So he is a strategic and technical genius. Not technical. Strategic genius. But I've seen him do stuff. Not, not to me but to others that were very, very tough. He, 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 he struggled with people who needed a human side. He struggles with people who are not as ruthless and hardcore as him, which is a trait of all the guys who are very, very driven, you know, and they a bit, not like Michael Jordan, last dance, but you know what I mean? That type of sort of angle. Uh, the only way is tough. The only way is like this. If you need the heart and the, the soul and stuff that you can fuck off, but some guys do. And I think the best coaches need to recognize that there's 15 guys in the room and those 15s are incredible different human beings and they need to be handled differently. Do you think those traits that you've both spoken about there mean that he is better suited to be a national team coach because you don't have 100%. to have that week in, week out? 100%. He is 100% the best fit for the French job because you don't have him all the time. He is very good. He does, you ask Johnny, but he does offer as well uh, um, an attack rugby. 
he's not one of those strategic minds that will be like, you know, like the Saracens way, just box kick it and then put the pressure in defense. He likes positive open play of playing pace, 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 pace. So he is absolutely perfect. But because of, you know, Johnny mentioned it, that it's the World Cup in Australia, won by England, 2003. He refused to play the little final, the third to fourth place. He pretended that he had a family problem, but everybody knows in, in rugby. That cost him the French job for 17 years, 16 years, what it was when he had it in 2019. But, but you can't blame it, at least. He's not a kiss-ass. He's a strong politician, but he will go with what he thinks is the best, even if it cost him the French job for a long, long time. And he pretty much said it open and bluntly to everyone. It has always been his dream. Because you play the best rugby in the world. He's, he's very ambitious. The best, best teams in the world. And because you don't have to, you, and apart from World Cup times where you're four, four months all the time together, you don't necessarily need to connect on the human level as much as when it is day-to-day in a club environment. So even to touch on that, even when we were with them in 2012, 2014 with guys like François Tranduc, you know, big players that were part of the French team, Fufu, Fulgian Drago, big players. We said even then, geez, this guy is capable of ruining an environment in a club perspective, because it's continuous and it's every day, but geez, he would be unbelievable if you could take him to the Scotland team or the French team or, or lead somebody during an eight-week campaign, then a summer tour, then a World Cup, he'd be number one on everyone's list. And I think now that you've got, like you touched on the attack points, he's, he is the best attack coach in France, without doubt. Then you look at the, the England game they just had in, in, the, in the Six Nations, the way that they broke down that English defence, it was Fabian written all over it. They're still the same plays that we used in Montpellier, the same open field structure plays and, and pop balls off shoulders to unlock defences. It was all Fabian. Now you've got him married with Sean Edwards. Unbelievable. So you've got the, you talked about the kickboxing, the pressure and the defence. Sean now, exit strategies, defence, adding that steel to the French team and marrying it with that French flair attacking rugby that Fabian produces they're going to be unbelievable. They're only one or half a campaign. They didn't get to play their last two games. Again, add Thibaut Giroud, the fitness coach who did Glasgow, then Toulon with Fabian. That guy, you speak to him, you speak to anybody about him that's worked with him, they love him as well. So they've now got a team, that French national team has a coaching structure around them now for the first time, I think personally, in 10 to 15 years, like you touched on earlier, Benji, that will allow them to flourish. So it's amazing that Fabian's there. They've got Sean Edwards there. They've got Thibaut there. They've got a team now with a solid foundation that they can really kick on, allow Dupont, Intermac, all these guys to kick on and start winning things again for the French national team. Sean Edwards, for, for once, we pulled our head out of our asses and actually realized we're going to go and get the best defense coach in the world. But remember that six months before, the French clubs got asked if they would be okay to have a foreign um, national side coach. And they said no. Because, because we think we're too good and too precious and too incredible not to get help from the, Gerd, the Warren Gatlins and the Joe Schmidt and uh, all those guys. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. They go and get the best. At least they've got Sean Edwards. But not only just to say that, Johnny, because I think you're dead right. Compare it to what it was, used to be. Just compare it. About, just do a little rewind and how it used to be a couple of years ago. Jacques Brunel was obviously not the man for the job. He was just the past generation. Julien Bonner is a mate of mine, but he was line-outs coach for the French team without never having coached once in his life. But would you turn down the French team? I wouldn't turn. I've never coached one second in my life, but I would still say yes to the gig if it was offered to me. The conditioning coach who got replaced by Olivier Giroud and how good he is was Nicolas Jean-Jean. Nicolas Jean-Jean is a, was a CrossFit instructor six months before that, but he's got 20 caps for France. So that's why they picked him. The backs coach was Jean-Baptiste Elissalde, who, coached, who got sacked from Toulouse and then coached the France under-18s. 
So that's the quality that you're trying to compare with. With and you, you can mention Laurent Labitte and William Servat and all that, and your new coaching staff. Who, if you have to pick the best coaching coach, the best line coach with Karim Gezal and the best um, sort of backs coach with Laurent Labitte, and yeah, for once we have an accumulation of quality, and that's why the future is so bright. I think. And just before we move off coaching. I don't know if you could mention Fabian as being a difficult guy, but but also a good coach in many ways. Are there any guys that fit that mould that, that often gets talked about? Or is it a myth, the kind of due due coaching philosophy in France? And also, Benjamin, obviously, not just in France. You played at Leicester under Marcelo Lefreda and Heineken Mayer. They didn't last very long, um, as well as Cockers. So, I mean, what were those guys like? So, and are there, are there any examples from both of you of those kind of coaches? So jouer jouer is a bit is the, the Toulouse sort of structure was to say play what's in front of you. So you can actually look like a pretty shit coach if you just say play on, you know, play what's in front of you. But if you actually look at what it means, it's decision making of playing what's in front of you. That's where the English are so poor at. They need a strategy, they need a backup plan, and as soon as you oh yeah, but the French they're too loose, and you know they don't do, no no no. If you think properly, you actually play what's in front of you. It just means adapting yourself to an option. You don't play the option for the option. You play the option because whilst it's happening, you can play two different things. You know, and that's a very different way of seeing it. So that's the general idea of French rugby. Build on the motivation and let people play what's in front of them. There's not so much structure and so much sort of phase preparation. But then to touch on Leicester Tigers, you, you touched a good one there because there's, there's three different angles of, of rugby there. There's Richard Cockrell, who was... A, a tough, tough, tough bugger. There's Hanneke Meyer, who was just the most formidable storytelling guy of pre-match. He used to tell the boys like a story before every game, but it was the story of like, you know, two frogs fall into a milk jug and then, or in a cream jug. And then the first frog was, ah, stuff this. Ah, I'm, I'm stopping, I'm quitting. And then he drowned. And the second one kept on pedaling and pedaling. And guess what? And it was like, he made cream? Yeah, he made cream. And then he jumped out. See, so that's how I want you to play today. And you will never give up. We're not quitters. Ah, let's go. And we're looking at him. Is he actually being serious? But it worked because he was genuine and it was fun. Uh, I remember every morning he used to guys ask the guys to get into a huddle and be like, good morning. And then was like, yeah. And they said, no, no, every morning I want you to yell to the top of your lung, good morning, coach. Okay. So we get there. Good morning. George Shooter, who was a really, really funny guy, would make sure that he would be next to him, you know, in the hurdle, absolutely next to him, would scream top of his voice in his ear. Come on, coach! But like, scream it. But he didn't take it badly. Fabian would sack him probably on the spot just for that, <laughs> for disrespect. But he, he, he didn't mind, you know, so he took it humanly. And then at the same time, you had Marcelo Alfreda, who poor thing didn't last very long because he was just d- d- disconnected. We were doing a, a tackling a contest drill and in, in Spanish, you, you can call that drill the fisherman drill. So you, you do the fisherman, you do the fisherman, and you hook the ball. It's just, it, it was complicated. And he called Richard Cockerell, not cockers, but he called him cock the whole time. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, thanks, cock. Uh, so now today we're going to do this. He's like, no, no, Marcelo, you know, it's like cockers. Goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Next day. Good morning, boys. Good morning, cock. I'm not surprised he didn't last long, if that's the case. Uh, Johnny, any, any examples similar to that? No, for me, it's just the looseness of France and how random coaches can end up in position. Like we had, again, he's a lovely man, but just not on the right level. A guy called Serge Mijas, who was our coach at Cast. His nickname before he arrived at the club was the relegator. He'd relegated Biarritz, he'd relegated La Rochelle. And then he came to Cast and we finished tied, I think, third bottom and stayed up by one point. It was Bayonne that went down. But 
in France, it's just a merry-go-round of the same coaches. But if you can persuade one guy with the money, the president, that you can come in and do a good job, you get that job. So, like, I've gone from having a vision of French flair and jouer, jouer, and then coming to France. And it's like having somebody's mad uncle as your coach. Sometimes you get there and you can't believe it. My last coach at Bayonne before Yannick Brew was Vincent Echetto. Vincent Echetto, again, lovely guy, but it was just put as much air on the ball as you can and throw the thing around. That was our game plan. So... Tony, I've, from on I've got a question. I've got a question for you for Vincent Echetto. I want to know if that's true or not. Because he's, he's, he's a big party guy. He's a bit of a party animal. And I've heard a story that at one point, he was so desperate to get the team on a piss-up that he sent an official invitation from the club saying, oh, sorry, we've got like a team meeting on a Sunday morning somewhere in Bayonne. And so he got the boys all to stay after the game just to go on the piss so that the wives were like, yeah, no, sorry, we've got to stay. Is that true or not? Yeah. He also, I mean, he organized... He organized TENS festivals for boys in Mauritius. So took them on like a training camp to Mauritius, but it basically was a 10-day piss-up. Um, he is an awesome guy, but again, not what you want directing or pushing an organization to be the best rugby team. But if you want to have fun and get on with somebody, he was amazing. Um, really good. I think he's now a consultant up in Nantes, I think in Federal One and doing a bit of work for Canal Plus, but hilarious. And the guys that you had, Serge Mias, then you had, you had Vincent at Bayonne, we had Pierre Berbizier, who came in and took over from Vincent for a little bit. And again, just next level, some of the stuff that you would like halftime team talks, like I was skippering in French and it wasn't going well at halftime. You'd say, Johnny, Braveheart, what is it? Show everybody, Braveheart. And he would repeat the phrase 15 times. And I'm sitting, he's looking directly at me and everybody else in the change room, I can see all the French kids, all the foreign guys pissing themselves at me because I can't say anything. I'm thinking it's well, it's a very loosely based story on an old war, and stuff. I can't say anything. I just sit there quietly, and he keeps going. 15th, show us Johnny Braveheart, Braveheart. What is it? And that so that gives you an idea. There's different vibes, different coaches. There's some absolutely top class coaches in France. There's some crack ups as well, but it's good fun. It's it's all good fun. It's it's a great place, and some of the coaches are, are top top drawer. So we've touched on the difference in culture a bit. That'll be a, a running theme throughout, I imagine, and, and training and coaching and diet and all that kind of thing. You two have both loved it. Clearly, it isn't for everyone. And there are loads of examples of, of players who have gone over to the top 14 and, and haven't thrived. So who, who's the best top 14 import either that you've played with or, or that you've just seen? And, and give us a few of the, the worst who, you know, they don't have to have been a, com a complete failure in terms of what they've done on the pitch, but they just maybe haven't adapted to that difference in culture. Well, before we get into it, definitely the worst are Jim Hamilton and Andy Good. That's like <laughs> an absolute definite. Okay? They just came to milk and drain the system. They'd absolutely fuck all for the rugby. But that's just a different, different story. Now, to be fair with all those guys that come over, you need to make a distinction between uh, current internationals, foreign internationals that come to France, who try to still to do both, and nearly retired guys who can only concentrate on club rugby. To do both is almost humanly impossible. So it's got nothing to do with who they are and why and what club. It almost is impossible. It's just too draining and too hard. And the perfect example, because it came out of his mouth, Jonathan Davis that played with me in Clermont, he literally told Wesley Fofana, his partner in the center with us in Clermont, like, as long as rugby's like this, this hard and this intense for this long, there's no chance in the world that you'll ever make it in the French team and both the club level. It's just too hard. The best example of, of fitting, or there's many, but the, one, the first one that comes to my mind is Nick Abendanon. Because Nick Abendanon, 
He's an absolute, for one, he's a legend of a bloke, but he's a fantastic rugby player who sort of got overlooked in England because you guys are too skinny, too small, too this, too that. I prefer Mike Brown. I prefer this. I prefer that. I think he's a hell of a player. He is a tiny little thing, but he, what, the first thing that he did is he started learning French before he came. The first day he rocked up at the club, he couldn't obviously speak fluent French, but he could still say a few sentences. And that earns the respect of the whole, whole team. There's also learning. I'm okay because I'm always the first one to sit down next to Johnny and speak to him in English at first when he first arrives at the first club. That's sort of my role in the, in the group. But all the Morgan and Para, who's a miserable little shit, but a lovely human being. And all those guys, all they want is, ah, look, another foreigner who's coming over. He just wants to milk it. Uh-huh. If the guy gets injured in the first week, he's, like, ah, he's just here for the social security, you know, and this and that. Nick made the effort of speaking a few words, of being genuinely interested, and he absolutely ripped it up on the pitch. And that year, he was European Player of the Year after being sort of a good player for Bath, but not, not even in, in England team. And he had the best season. He was incredible for us. So for, there's plenty of examples. Johnny Wilkinson, as soon as he wasn't injured, he was legendary in Toulon, and he was playing week in, week out, and he was incredibly good. And he spoke, spoke and speaks, obviously, perfect French. But I mean, perfect French. That makes a difference. That shows respect for the country. You know, I'm not saying it's not an easy language to, to learn, but make an effort. Show that you're trying. That's a big, big thing. So these are the best examples. And apart from Jimbo and, and, and Andy Good, who are horseshit in France, but there's, 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 I don't know, Ricky Flutti, guys like that, that, that just did not bring what they, what they, what they should have. Uh, Jonathan Sexton. Jonathan Sexton playing for racing looked average. I'm not saying he's obviously far from being average. He's a fantastic fly half, but you know what I mean? You could tell it was just too much, too harsh. He was used to this European rugby style ref refereeing where it's about open play and this and that. You play against Cast when Johnny was there. They're the, the, the worst team to possibly play against. But that's what they, that's what Christophe Rio sort of cultivated in them. We don't want to be the best team. We want to be your worst nightmare. So every single ruck there, they're fighting you, stepping on your toes, and just they make it long, awkward, painful, and then very, very tight. And in rugby, you know, it can be three points above, three points under, you just never know what happens. So, yeah, these are the examples I've got for you, but there's obviously a ton of them. There's a huge list. Even guys like you haven't mentioned, but I've been there longer, come over earlier, guys like um, Brock James. I used to love watching him play. You can The sort of performance indicators, you see if somebody's flying week in, week out for their team, they're well integrated. They've made the effort and they're enjoying it. Guys like Mamuka Gorgodzi, who I played with at Montpellier, he's a Frenchman. The guy's an absolute legend, but he was destructive, aggressive, and amazing for Montpellier and then Toulon every single week for years. There's, there's a long list. Then you've got guys more recently like the Armitage brothers, both Steph and Delon, who were French speakers, but they came over and the level they were at for Toulon was unbelievable. More recently, guys that are still playing tonight, like Finn Russell, Scottish example, Finn is absolutely unbelievable for racing every single week. Probably the best 10 in Europe right now. Zebo as well has come over. He was the top 14 player of the year last year, the year before, I think. So there's a huge list. If you buy in properly on that base level, make an effort with the language and get in with your teammates, France is stunning. From a rugby perspective and the country, it's a beautiful part of the world. If you don't, you come in, you think it's going to be easy. People are going to hand things to you on a plate. They're going to speak to you in English. They're not going to expect you to understand calls in French. You're in the wrong place. Like Jim was a good example, but like Jim came over and that was it. Because we were less structured in RD, he got hung out to dry a couple of times and that was it. The coaches started to disrespect him. They started abusing him on touch lines in front of cameras. It was messy. And he'd made up his mind after three, four months at Montpellier, he was gone. His head was 100% gone and it wasn't for him. 
Um, Rennie Ranger, another guy that came over at the same time who was an all-black, was in the World 15, was unbelievable. But you could see he didn't enjoy the way Fabian Galtier and Ledesma spoke. So he didn't buy in. He was like, this isn't for me, I'm out. And he tapped out mentally after three, four months like Jim and he was gone. So as much as there's a list of guys that have come over here and made it and they have been unreal, there's the other side of the, to- of the, of the coin where you get guys like even Joe Rocococo find it really hard at Bayonne at the start. And Julian Savea, an example at Toulon, didn't go well for him. Started getting abused in the national press by Bujalao. Quade Cooper, when he first came over, he made the comparison. I remember reading this article. Bujalao made the comparison. So he swapped Johnny Wilkinson for Quade Cooper. And the national headline was, it feels like I've swapped foie gras for pate. And like I fell off my chair. But that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with. And then you've got to go in the next week, see the guy in the tunnel before you go out to train and get back on the horse and try and play well for him. Like that is the strange part of France. And if you can't handle that pressure and that conversation that comes with it, which at times can be really harsh, it's a tough place to be, definitely. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, the season in the UK obviously hasn't finished yet, but the new season in France starts this weekend, the new top 14 season. Uh, so should we have a look ahead to that? Um, Stade Francais Bordeaux has been called off, hasn't it? Uh, there, were, there were a few positive tests in the Toulouse ranks ahead of their game with Clermont, but they've been retested and that seems all good now. So that is going to go ahead. And there's also 10,000 fans going to that game, which is obviously the most for, for a while. So what do we make of it all heading into the opening weekend um, in terms of the way it's been handled by the LNR and just where we stand at the moment? So I think it's going to be very, very tough. I mean, you think already a lot of the teams haven't had preseason games. Some, some teams have had not one preseason minute. They've played games against each other in a training environment, but they haven't played any competitive rugby. You then think that, again, in the back of their minds, the players know nothing's been organized by the LNR. In terms of in Britain, we know in English rugby, if a game is cancelled, the team that cancelled it forfeits the game 20 points to zero. 
other team wins and they get the points. In France, they said, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll postpone games. So everybody, like I spoke to some of the players in Bayonne and Biarritz this week, they're saying, no matter what happens, we know that come the end of the year, we're going to have a bottleneck of games and weeks, possibly months, where we're playing Wednesday, Sunday. And that's okay if you're Clermont and you have a huge team with a great depth in your, in your, in your team. But, you know, if you're Bayonne and you're trying to develop young kids, you've effectively got Espoir kids and a front-range team, you're going to suffer. So I'd say it's exciting. Look, everyone's desperate. The rugby's coming back. It's amazing that fans are going back. I'm going up to do one of the games for Canal Plus this weekend. I can't wait. But everybody's worried. People aren't ready to play yet. And they know that further down the line, there's going to be a huge bottleneck of games where it's going to be super tough for these guys to back it up week in, week out. You pick up two or three injuries at tight head prop, you don't have a game. Um, so I don't know how it's going to be controlled. I don't know how the coaching teams are going to try and manage their players through the year. It's going to be hard, uh, very, very hard. I don't know what you think, Benji, but I think it's going to be brutal. I think it's going to be brutal because not only for the lack of preparation, but for the lack of vision, just like you said. It, it, we got struck with the reality of the fact, like the monster that I was telling you that we created with the top 14, which is incredible. And we get all those names there and the stage number four, yes. But it's, it's a very, very unreliable system. And what's happening now, obviously, that could, not, could have not been predicted by anybody ever. But still, it's just showing the flaws of the system that is too depending on, on, on money. Clearly, top 14 cannot afford to play even one game with no fans. 15% uh, of the TV broadcasting rights is what the budget is out of 35, 40 million, whatever budget euros that they have in, in, in most clubs. So they cannot afford to do it, but not, I mean, not one. And they said at first it might be 5,000 people, 5,000 people, a club like Clermont, who has 550 uh, big and small sponsors can last five or six weeks, I think they said. So they're trying to find a solution, but even to the point, there's already a jammed up calendar. And then they're like, no, no, no. We, we, the reason why Johnny is what he said about they're, they're not going to cancel games in case of COVID um, contamination within the squad. It's because they can't afford it. So they will play Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, whatever, if you want to. They don't care about player uh, uh, health and welfare and whatever. Um, three years ago or four years ago, they decided to add this barrage, which is like almost like a quarterfinal, like a fake quarterfinal to get to top 14 playoffs. Everybody was already telling them how many, there's too many games, too many games, too many games. And the first idea they come up, oh, we're going to add a game. They do not care about the welfare of players, plain and simple. They keep on telling you, if you get paid this much money, you want us to create a system for you to get paid this much, then shut your mouth. I don't know how many votes there are in, in the league. There's probably top 14 plus uh, Pro D2 is what, 18 clubs, I think. Is that what it is in, 18, in Pro D2 or something like that? So let's say there's 32 clubs plus the player syndicates. Every single year, we need to validate the calendar. There's 32 yes and one no. The players say no every single year. No, we can't do that, man. You're making us play Boxing Day, New Year's, uh, six games without they say oh there's only four or five games uh, without the internationals well not really because they leave the week before and then you need to give them a week of holiday so into total it's eight weeks without your your guys the fans are not happy because they, don't, they barely can recognize a Clermont to Toulouse side that's facing if you're missing half the teams because of the French internationals and nobody's happy to do it because it's it's a bit tough but we created this monster that needs to eat yum 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 so much cash so the problem is that we're sort of stuck in it so I'm, I'm really, really scared that there's going to be down the line, the consequences are going to be on players losing their jobs. This pandemic needs to be dealt with. It's super serious. Unfortunately, hospitality in the stadium is, not, is far from being world uh, priority. I get that. But I'm afraid that in the system, they're going to have to cut somebody at some point. 
And when you're trying to align world rugby, reuniting everybody, you know, the, all the different leagues of the world to say, how are we going to save rugby in general? And then you get the president of the league to say, oh, by the way, if you want the, the day before in the press, in the French press, he says, if they want to touch the top 14, it will be war. That, that tells you how narrow-minded and how much they care about their income in their premiership in their thing. Whereas the pandemic is hitting everybody in the same time in the world. So I'm just scared that this money is going to hit uh, something and something being a club going down and then players losing their jobs. To go back, do you know what I find really interesting about that is, so I can remember Jackie Lorenzetti saying in March, I don't know, end of March, beginning of April, already he calculated, look, if this hits now, we're going to lose one and a half million euros a month. Then what happened in the UK and all the other unions was they arranged players to take big pay cuts. So in England, maybe globally 25%, Scotland, a sliding scale between 10 and 25%, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, much bigger, huge cuts. But then I talk to people here in France about what's happening on the club level. There's nothing. So Beerits, for instance, was five. Bayonne, next to nothing. So every club has decided to do different things, but it's way less comparatively than your competitors and your other leagues. Yet at the same time, we know this pileup is going to go. So I find it strange that the French presidents and the league haven't been pro- proactive in saying, look, let's try and get a claw back a bit now to protect ourselves. Instead, they sort of let it go to keep players happy, but then they're going to shaft the players in four months' time when you have this massive pileup of calendar fixtures. So I just find it really poor in the way that it's been organized so far from the French perspective is that they could have held some money back and protected themselves and the players, whereas now it's going to become a massacre. I think the next few months are going to be messy for French rugby. And just just quickly on the positive tests themselves, I mean, there may be more now, but I think that there have been positive tests at 11 of the of the 30 professional clubs in, in France. Obviously, we've had games cancelled already and there, there will be more to come, I think it's fair to say. Is that just a reality with the, the global pandemic that we're in and, and the situation that is on the ground in France? Or if there were tighter regulations in terms of what players can and can't do and stuff, would you have fewer positive tests? Because I know it's very different in England at the moment, but the latest round of testing in the premiership, zero positive tests. So is that just a reality of what's happening in France or is it to do with regulation? Um, to be fair, I've, that's, that's a tough, tough argument to, 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 to say because Give it a couple of weeks and things can be very different. When you compare numbers a couple of months ago, you're looking at new cases per day. Yeah, but they were testing 5,000 people per week. Now they're testing 5 million people per week, roughly. And, and obviously there's more cases. That's just statistics. What I want to know is the number of guys who got, who were tested positive in all those teams who actually had symptoms. And there's 99.9999 of them who had nothing. So there's the danger of spreading it to other people. You have to be very, very careful with that, obviously. But apart from keep, keeping people in the bubble, it's impossible. The Stade Francais example is, is a sore one. They got tested on the Monday, zero positive, And they left for camp on the Wednesday morning. And they, when they traced it back, they realized that one of the blokes went out in Paris Tuesday night in the bar and this and that, and probably a Scotsman or something. And then I had a couple of beers, caught it next, day, next Wednesday morning. They went on camp, full on training, full on uh, contact training all together. They came back the following day, the following Wednesday, what it was, there was 20-ish cases. The whole club was like uh, frozen. Everybody back in quarantine and, and all this, but nobody in touch wood. I hope it stays like that. You know, obviously it's a serious, serious thing, but nobody uh, got in trouble. So the reality of having zero cases is extremely unlikely. Uh, the, the, the only solution is not to freeze the whole game, but just isolate those guys, in my opinion. 
Interesting. That's the first time in a bubble sort of close to me that I've seen cases. I've been so far detached from coronavirus, but this is the first time where it feels real, where you have friends of friends that are being affected in sports teams. And like I think Stavron said, there was 27 guys at the end of the week had it because of that one guy that went out on the piss in Paris. But the scary thing was that, you know, a lot of the front row boys were struggling, like they had lung problems. And that's when it makes you think, you know, shit, this is actually serious. Although we've been so far removed, we're living in Southwest France, Southwest France, there's no cases. You can see one step removed now. You've got professional sportsmen, elite sportsmen struggling with, with lung problems after contracting it from one guy going out in the piss. So it's just another indicator to stay vigilant, look after yourselves and, and, and don't be stupid because you can see how quickly it rips through a team. And that obviously has huge repercussions, not only for the team and the, the health of the individuals within it, but then obviously the sport and, and things moving forward. So it's crazy. It's crazy, but that's just the way it is for, for the next few months. Right. Let's get into the rugby on the pitch. Then it starts on Friday night in the top 14. So uh, I want to get your predictions. So who, who's winning the top 14 this year? It's very difficult to say with everything that's going on. Who's making the playoffs? Who's getting relegated? Come on, give us, give us a vibe of what's, what's going to happen. So if you, if you're staying on the sort of the, who was hot uh, last year, Bordeaux were absolutely killing it. And I agree with Johnny that you have to keep an eye on them. They've got a great coach. You know, when somebody, when a club has got sort of a, a dynamic about it, uh, everything's going their way. But they lost Semi Radradra, who is an absolute butcher of a rugby player, who is one of the biggest freaks I ever... Uh, I mean, I played with him with the English Babas and I was blown away. Um, we had uh, Joshua uh, Tuisova on one side and Semi Radra in the middle. He killed the whole England team on his own. Uh, Toulouse last year struggled just because they played the first 10 games in the World Cup where half the team was away. So they will be back and they will be a force to be reckoned with. Clermont, you have you always have to look at them because I think there's a, they really had a tough one last year because I left the club, you know, and I'm irreplaceable, obviously. <laughs> but now they have some seriously good signings. Really excited about see how Sébastien Bézy can form an incredible partnership with Morgan Parra at number nine uh, and play positive rugby. They will be honestly a force to reckon with. But funnily enough, the, the wide, wild, wild bet that I have in my head is I think you need to reckon with Stade Francais. Stade Francais was struggling with management. They got Gonzalo Quesada, who's back, who is a club legend, who is a very, very good manager. You look at their team on, on paper, they have an incredible team. And they were just missing with that, that culture and sort of coaching fit and stuff. And I have a feeling like they could be the surprise of the season. I hope so, because it was sad to see how quickly they fell from being champions as well, not that long ago, with an, you know, a team stacked full of talent. They even they'd signed, you know, they picked Maestri from Toulouse, they'd taken Fiku from Toulouse, hugely talented, but obviously they were just crumbling because they weren't being well-led. Whereas now, you know, with Gonzalo coming back, I think he'd be a really good guy to get on here as well to pick his brains because he is loved by everyone up there. And they could be a surprise package. There's other guys, I think you mentioned all the big ones. So you've got Racing 92, Still have to watch out for Racing. They're still good. They haven't recruited much in the offseason, but great talent, consistent. If they keep players fit, Kurtley Beal coming in as well will add something extra to them. Um, maybe a second playmaker with Finn Russell. So that's going to be great to watch, I think. Um, Montpellier, again, you've no idea what they're going to throw together with Philippe Saint-André taking the reins and, and taking over from Garbajosa. So again, completely unknown quantities. So you've got some teams just bubbling away. You don't know what's going to happen, but you can't look beyond Clermont, Toulouse, these guys are going to be up there again come the end of the year. Bordeaux, consistent. They were amazing last year. I think one that's not going to be there again is Toulon. I think they've, since the big spending days and, and the coaching changeovers, they haven't quite managed to hit those high notes that they where they were. Um, and then if you look at the other end of the table, it's going to be a real shit fight. You've got four, maybe five teams now 
without big budgets, a lot of young French kids lost a lot of big foreign stars that were holding them together, changed their coaches. So you look at Poe, you look at Agen, you look at Bayonne, you look at Breve. Again, they struggled at parts last year. Bayonne, straight out of the blocks, they did amazingly well, beating Racing in Paris during the World Cup. But you think this year when everyone has their stars and everyone's fit, how are they going to fare? So there's four or five teams that I'm a wee bit worried about this year. I mean, cast as well, didn't, they didn't do as well as they should have after you know winning the, the championship a couple of years ago. So there's four or five, maybe six teams that could shoot it out to go down. And your big dogs are still going to be your big dogs this year, led by some world-class, you know, Cheslin Colby, Jerome Kano, Victor Vito, Finn Russell, these guys throwing together some pretty big games. So it should be some good watching and good, and good fun to commentate on Benji eventually. And you mentioned one of the major new signings to the league there in Kirtley Beale going to wrestling. And there is bound to be, there are bound to be some fireworks on the pitch with him and Finn Russell. But I can't be the only one who can't wait to hear about the nights out in Paris for those two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's part of the Paris life. Huh? He's, got, he's got to discover it. Ah, listen, if Finn Russell can, can make it, then he can make it. I mean, it's, it's not a problem if... If Ali Williams had a good time in racing, then then I'm sure I'm sure that Kurt Nabil will be fine. Um, it's 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 one of those challenges, but you you'd be surprised of how much pressure these international boys, especially coming from Southern Hemisphere, when it's much smaller countries, are under the pressure that they're under in their home countries. So they come to to France and they're just relieved. He won't have to worry about the Wallabies. He just have to worry about his rugby, enjoying Paris. I mean, Paris is a hell of a city. And um, for the nightlife, yes, but also for the afternoons, you know, there's something else to do. So <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon he'll, he'll rip it up. Um, so apart from Kirtley Bale, um, any, any of the major signings or even, even signings that might have gone under the radar that we should look out for? So there's two at Montpellier I'm really looking forward to watching. You've got Kobas Reinach, who signed the South African World Cup winner scrum half. He's electric. You've also got, they've taken uh, Vincent Rates from La Rochelle. Um, he can sniff out a try line from 50 meters away. It doesn't look like a massive rugby player, but yeah, you got it. <laughs> but again, really exciting talent. Um, the other one I had was Brice Dulin, who we haven't seen for a long time, but a guy who was playing obviously at cast at Racing and then I was signed at La Rochelle. So a chance for him after being injured and losing his place at Racing to sort of reignite his career and do something cool at La Rochelle with John O'Gibbs and um, Ron O'Gara. So there are two or three guys I think we should watch out for. Um, but that's it. There's a constant churn of talent in the top 14 that hopefully we'll get to talk to you, but we'll get to see you do some fairly fantastic um, things on the rugby pitch over the next few months. I think as well, I don't know what you think about the imports, Benjamin, but there's quite a lot of wingers heading over to the top 14 this season that have got kind of big reputation. I know uh, Kataro Matsushima, the Japanese star from the World Cup, he's gone over there. Ben Lamb from Super Rugby scored bucket load of tries. Uh, Gabriel Libertoy from Quinns in the Premiership as well. So it should be there should be some exciting rugby. Well, they're clearly coming for the cash, let's face it. <laughs> it's just because they're money-grabbing, very, very fast people. They, they come for the excitement. Matsushima, I mean, I almost mentioned him. To be totally honest, I don't see the fit. Like I'm, and, and it's it's my club in Clermont. I think I think he's obviously a very talented rugby player. I mean, you saw him at the World Cup. He ripped it up. And I was there commentating. I, I, to be honest, I didn't know who he was. And he was just incredible. I just think top 14 does not really suit him in terms... It's going to be tough. It can be wet. It can be... You know, malls and brawls and, and rucks and all that. And that just doesn't seem to suit him. But he can be the prime Nick Abandonon example and actually rip it. And he's definitely has got the qualities. But th there's incredible imports. There's also the way that the team uses them. Uh, there's no point of having a lamb in Bordeaux if you don't feed him the ball. 
but if if the boys are ready and they and they actually want to show some 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 positive things on the pitch, I mean, talent is extraordinary. Then it's just getting used to what it is to be refereeing in France, getting used to what it is to living in France, being French, being confronted to French people, and just stop being yeah telling me oh but they don't ref the rucks in France yeah well that's what it is just deal with it clean them yourself you know Bakis Botta did it for years and he he dealt with it it was fine and just quickly before we go obviously the new temporary format for the Champions Cup was announced this week for 2020 2021 eight French teams quite a convoluted system in terms of big 12 teams in each group what did you make of all of it and particularly from a French angle having eight teams in there I think so I'd go back I remember playing for Fabian Galtier and they don't look at, or certainly Fabian didn't because it was a different type of club and they were trying to reach for those heights. But he said, look at it as a, a joli cadeau. He was like, look at it as a pretty present. You do with it with what you can for two, three games. If you're still in it, you go for it. Otherwise, we just chuck it. It doesn't matter. And I think that'll be the exact same now. We've, we've talked about the pressure of four or five teams down the bottom now who aren't going to play Champions Cup rugby, which helps them. If you think now before there were six guys battling out with one eye on Champions Cup, one eye on top 14, they all now know how important economically top 14 is. I think if after two games, these guys, these teams aren't winning in Champions Cup, it's gone. They have to focus on top 14 because it's going to be an absolute dogfight this year, especially with eight teams playing as opposed to six. It makes it even harder to stay in the top 14. So that's the kind of what we're going to see, I think, is the byproduct of an extension and the addition of two extra teams. But in terms of the wider European spectrum, it's exciting. Like you get to see different teams from different countries playing at the highest level. Again, different kind of level, running, quit rugby, well-refereed. So it'll be a big test for the French teams to get up and running. But that's it. My worry is it'll be poorer than it was before. And if these teams aren't in it after two games, it'll be gone. Back of the back of the mind into the bin and back to top 14 because they, they have to be on form in top 14 and winning games. Otherwise, you're straight down 12th place and you potentially 14th and gone. So I don't know what you think, Benji, but I, I just think it's a nice idea, but it makes it even harder for French teams. I think it's a great idea to actually adapt and to try to find a solution instead of being stuck in their own ways. And, you know, saying if you touch two European leagues it's going to be war like top 14 did at least they're trying to be proactive and find a solution which i think is good but i i totally agree with johnny the pressure is sky high uh we're talking about survival not even being ambitious just literally surviving and so the guy who gets um, relegated to, to to second division is is dead meat so 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 they're going to have to concentrate on top 14 it's already going to be tough enough the only thing is the few teams that play it seriously clermont racing toulouse they will go for long they will go for on, and I think it's going to be super exciting. I'm extremely looking forward to European rugby. I'm a huge fan of European rugby. I really do think it's 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 the one level between international rugby. It's what I love about rugby. I want to see French guys play the Welsh and play the Scottish and play uh, the Irish and the English and all that, and just have those different types of rugby, different personalities. I love those clashes. I think that's what I love the most. And then you have a few glasses of wine or Guinness or whatever it is <laughs> after. You know, but that's what it is. That's what we fall in love with rugby with. We love the, the Brits when they're going to get obliterated in France when they come over. But we love to drink Guinness until, until we pass out when we go to Ireland. You know, that's, that's part of rugby. And that's what we all love with it. And that's European rugby. And for those who are not lucky enough to play international rugby. So I'm, I'm super excited that they found a solution. I do agree with Johnny. I think it's going to make it, unfortunately, even more cut edge in terms of we play it serious or saint joli cadeau and then forget about it, which is the mentality in, in some teams, which is very disappointing. Never been mine, but it is the reality. But, but still really looking forward to it. 
Well, hopefully that's whetted the appetite ahead of Europe in the weeks to come and the top 14 starting this weekend. Thanks, Benji. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks to everyone for listening as well. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. Leave us a nice five-star review, maybe, if you have time. Merci beaucoup. And also check us out on YouTube as well. You can see the guys in all their glory. And we'll be back (laughs) for episode two with a special guest next week. So until then, it's uh, a bientôt, guys. A bientôt. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.